Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop highlights from the 2017 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. Um, this is part one of a two-part series, and this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and really because of that collaboration, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have over 564 participants on the call today, and you come from Australia, but well, mostly from the United States, but we have participants from Australia, Canada, Cyprus, Ireland, New Zealand, and Venezuela, so truly um, a global call, um, actually. Um, today's program is supported by AbbVie, the Celgene Corporation, Gilead, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, Taiho Oncology, Inc., an educational donation provided by Amgen, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. Um, I want to thank them for their support of this program and for their collabor collaborative corporate collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is attending physician, thoracic oncology service, the William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be um, presenting on updates from ASCO on lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Chris. Hello. I'd like today uh, to report to you uh, results of uh, new developments in the field of uh, thoracic oncology uh, that were uh, presented uh, in June uh, at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Uh, that meeting, uh, which uh, takes place every year uh, in Chicago, uh, brings together tens of thousands of cancer specialists from around the world. Uh, and it is a, a focus for the sharing of uh, new information. Uh, and uh, what people are really looking for are those pieces of information that can affect the care of uh, patients uh, the next day. Uh, and this year at ASCO, I think we had a number of uh, uh, pieces of information that became available uh, that truly could help doctors uh, do a better job in their practice and they are ready to be uh, used today uh, to uh, improve uh, our care of, of people with various kinds of lung cancers. Um, I think one overarching theme, though, of this uh, annual meeting and care in general of lung cancers in 2017 is this idea of uh, multimodality care, multi-specialty care, and also uh, having a uh, care team. Uh, both a uh, personal one uh, and a, uh, I'll call it a uh, hospital-based one uh, that you uh, are a part of. I think it's very, very critical uh, to make sure that um, everyone that can provide uh, information that's important to your care uh, be uh, available to you and, and that they work together, uh, and also that uh, you, because of the uh, complexity of information, uh, the number of people that you have to interact with to get op optimal care. Uh, virtually everybody needs uh, a second set of ears, 
and, and somebody to help you uh, remember what was said, uh, talk things through, and help you make treatment decisions. Uh, so we need to do that as medical professionals. You need to do that as a person uh, in a family fighting cancer, and I urge you to spend some time thinking about who's on your team uh, and making sure you know them and that you work together. Uh, the reason you need this team is because we have so many ways of fighting cancer in 2017. And I think in uh, the uh, therapy of lung cancers, uh, the uh, day when uh, lung cancers were treated by a single specialist is really over. Um, I, I think though you may receive only one uh, kind of treatment, you may receive only surgery, for example, I think it's very important that you... Uh, have the input of other doctors uh, to alert you to various options and to have the specialists talk through among themselves what those various options are. So today, people can receive surgery, they can receive radiation, they can receive what would I like to call traditional uh, chemotherapy, uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy, another name for that. People have therapy targeting blood vessels, anti-angiogenesis therapy, People have treatments that go after certain gene targets in cancer cells, so-called targeted therapy. Uh, people have therapy that uh, targets uh, the immune system and helps the body build up its own uh, uh, defenses against the cancer. Uh, and uh, lastly, um, we have clinical trials offering new approaches, new agents to fight your cancer. All those things are on the table virtually for every patient every time. <clears throat> and it's critical to know what your options are, to sort through them, and to have your healthcare team choose the best for you, uh, choose what should be given together, choose what uh, order things sh uh, should be used in. Uh, and, and that is the, uh, the challenge in providing the optimal care now. And I think the ASCO meeting uh, reflected that because the developments that were discussed there involved all these different aspects of care. I think the first thing um, to, uh, to talk about uh, is the uh, emergence of a, a better treatment uh, for uh, ALK-positive lung cancer. There is a certain gene target, something called ALK, ALK, uh, and drugs have been developed specifically for that. Uh, what was reported at the ASCO meeting this year and now subsequently reported in a uh, medical journal is that the drug electinib, electinib, was better than the current standard drug, a drug called crizantinib. And it was better in two ways. Uh, it more effectively uh, kept away the cancer, that, so a longer period of time from the start of treatment to the recurrence of the cancer was seen with electinib than with its comparators. And what it also did is it seemed to do that with fewer side effects. Um, so for those reasons, electinib is now the first drug. Again, the results published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the results also added to the NCCN guidelines. So in the last few months, we've had a change in what's the best initial therapy for patients without positive lung cancer, and the answer now is uh, electinib. <clears throat> the second development was in the area of uh, immune treatment. Um, many people that receive an immune treatment, uh, again, drugs like uh, uh, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, durvalumab. These drugs uh, take away the cancer's ability to mask itself from the immune system and have your own immune system fight the cancer. These drugs help some people, but not all. 
and these drugs have side effects associated with them. And so there was a uh, presentation by uh, Dr. Santini uh, from my hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, that talked about what do you do when you have a side effect of these therapies? Does it make sense to start the therapy up again at some later date when the side effect is controlled, or does it make sense to stop treatment? And I think what he found was that for those patients that already had a major shrinkage of their cancer due to the immune therapy, that there did not seem to be a strong reason to restart that treatment. Uh, people had just as good a degree of benefit even after stopping therapy, uh, and people were uh, susceptible to side effects from the continuation of therapy. Uh, and so because it didn't provide additional benefit and could cause additional side effects, it makes the most sense not to uh, recommend that at this point. So I think that was a new piece of information that was available to your doctors. Uh, and actually some good news for some patients and, and kind of goes along with how we think these drugs work because we feel that once uh, the drugs have educated the immune system, uh, they know what to do. It's just like when you've had uh, a vaccine in your youth, it, it, it protects you throughout your life. You can think of these drugs working the same way. Uh, a second uh, uh, group of papers talked about ways of enhancing uh, the effects of, of surgery. We know that many people have their cancer uh, cured by surgery, uh, that by adding in chemotherapy uh, to surgery and radiation, you can further improve the cure rate. But two papers were, were presented this year, one by uh, uh, Jamie Chaft, who reported uh, results from Johns Hopkins and from Sloan Kettering, and there they gave an immune treatment prior to surgery as a way of killing the cancer more effectively and hopefully improving outcomes. And what they found was that these uh, immune drugs, in this case nivolumab, could be given. It could be given safely. And when they actually looked at what happened to the cancer uh, when it was examined at the time of surgery, they saw that in a, a good proportion of the patients, the cancer was, was killed. So uh, I think that's ushered into a, a new era of using the immune treatments with uh, surgery. Uh, and this was the first hint of that. There's also uh, research going on now about giving immune treatments after successful surgery. Those are, are clinical trials. There are several uh, being conducted now throughout the world, uh, and I think those are another way of improving the chance of cure with surgery. A second uh, paper was uh, presented by Dr. Yu, Dr. Wu, and what Dr. Wu did is he took people that had had a curative surgery and uh, gave uh, some of them uh, a chemotherapy and, and some of them a, um, a, a targeted therapy, in this case a drug gefitinib. And what they found is that the patients that had gefitinib, uh, they had a, a longer time between when the cancer was treated by surgery and when it ultimately returned again. Uh, the side effects of the, of the uh, gefitinib tablets were uh, generally less than chemotherapy, uh, and it sort of is a new paradigm here by using these targeted therapies uh, with surgery and with chemotherapy, I, I personally would, would try to give chemotherapy as well because it's been proven to improve the cure rate, and I would try to add this drug, gefitinib, uh, on top of that. But I think the, uh, the message of the ASCO meeting was that we can do more to increase the chance of cure with surgery, and, and this is an example of that. Uh, another important uh, development happened uh, at the uh, general session of the meeting. There's a few 
um, uh, papers, actually four papers uh, out of the uh, thousands that are uh, submitted. Uh, and four of them are presented to the entire group because they feel it's worthy of attention for the whole group. One of them was presented by Dr. Ethan Bash. And what that was, it was a, a fairly simple project, and that was to give patients 15 questions about their illness, about how the illness is affecting their lives, about various side effects of the illness, symptoms of the illness, and to take the information from the patient and give it to their healthcare team. And what they found was patients that completed these uh, questionnaires, it was generally a tablet kind of questionnaire while they were waiting to see the doctor, and had that given information given to their healthcare team, and the healthcare team saw it and acted upon it, those patients lived longer than patients uh, that simply uh, saw their doctor in the usual way. So this is a very important paper uh, because it shows that, number one, how important uh, communication is, how important it is to, to ask about the various problems that you're suffering from, and how, in truth, something that's available to everybody all around the world, to ask about the symptoms, act upon them, and, and, uh, and make sure you ask and just don't rely on people to, to bring them up, uh, can lead to uh, not just an improvement in the decency of life, but actually a longer life. I think this uh, paper uh, is going to have some profound effects on, on how we uh, deliver uh, cancer care now, uh, and this came up at that meeting. There were two other papers uh, that were presented at the meeting, that were not presented at the meeting, rather, that have subsequently uh, been uh, presented at a, a meeting of the European Oncology, Oncology Society uh, held about a week ago. And two drugs that are available, one called osimertinib, a drug for EGFR mutant lung cancers, given after the failure of their initial drugs. Um, it was shown that when you give this drug as the first treatment, uh, people live longer and have uh, fewer side effects than people getting the standard drugs, either gefitinib or allotinib. So I think this paper is going to usher in a whole new era of the treatment of EGFR mutant lung cancers. I think this drug, osimertinib, is going to be the drug given to every patient when EGFR mutant lung cancer is diagnosed. Uh, it seems to work better. Uh, it, it has fewer side effects, uh, and I think it's going to be a new standard of care. Uh, the second uh, uh, development that was uh, presented at the uh, um, meeting in uh, Europe, in Madrid, last uh, week, and also now included in a manuscript published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is with a drug called nivolumab. Patients that have had uh, cancers in the lung that are too far advanced for surgery but not, med but not spread throughout the body are normally treated with uh, simultaneous chemotherapy and radiation. And we oncologists have tried very hard to find better treatments uh, beyond chemotherapy and radiation given simultaneously. We've increased the dose of radiation. We've given more chemotherapy. We've tried different kinds of chemotherapy. But in the last two decades, nothing has been proven to be better than simultaneous chemo and radiation. In this case, though, another one of these new immune-targeted therapies, an anti-PD-1 drug called Durvalumab, uh, now already approved for patients with bladder cancer, this drug when given after chemotherapy and radiation, substantially improved uh, the time that the cancer uh, was under control and, 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 and pushed the time before cancer returned. And with more time, we hope to see that that improves the cure rate as well. So this uh, trial was another one, again, not at ASCO, but, but subsequently presented. 
um, that I think is ultimately going to lead to uh, a change in care where people after getting chemotherapy and radiation for locally advanced disease are going to receive darvalumab or a drug comparable to that uh, in order to improve the chance of cure. So there were lots of developments this year in the field of lung cancer care, um, improvements in the, with surgery, with radiation, uh, using uh, drugs with chemo drugs, using uh, immune therapies better, finding better targeted therapies. All these things were presented. I urge you to uh, put together your own healthcare team that works with your uh, hospital-based healthcare team to come up with all the options available. Choose the best ones for you uh, and, and take advantage of all the new developments uh, that uh, can be brought to bear to fight your cancer throughout the illness. And with that, I will uh, turn uh, back uh, the call to uh, Carolyn Messner. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really outstanding and, and very informative. And, and a lot of the themes that you raised, you may hear, all the participants may hear it, how they apply with different cancers throughout the entire call. So we now have our next speaker, Dr. Al Benson. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to address updates on the treatment of colorectal cancer presented at ASCO. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. And uh, this year at ASCO, there were many, many reports relative to GI cancers, including colorectal cancer. And I've selected a few of the colorectal cancer reports that I think will, will affect uh, patient treatments, and also, importantly, how we design clinical trials in this uh, disease site. So the trial that perhaps uh, received the greatest deal of attention at ASCO was known as the IDEAL, IDEA trial. And what we have learned in the past from clinical trials is that for patients with stage 3 colon cancer, treatment with either CAPOX, which is uh, oral capecitabine and IV oxaliplatin, or Fulfox, which is IV 5-FU and IV oxaliplatin, can uh, reduce the risk of recurrence uh, for patients with stage 3 disease. Now, we also know that, particularly with oxaliplatin, there can be toxicities. Importantly, there can be uh, neurologic toxicity. And so it would be advantageous if we could reduce the number of cycles of treatment that individuals receive after surgery. The current standard is six months. And what the IDEA trial was doing is looking to see if three months of treatment with either CAPOX or Fulfox was at least non-inferior to the six months of treatment. So it wasn't designed to show one was better than another, but at least that three months was non-inferior. And this uh, IDEA trial was actually a pooled analysis of six randomized trials throughout the world 12 different countries, including countries in Europe, the U.S., Canada, and Japan. 
And there were over uh, 12,000 patients who participated in these studies. And what the trial showed was, as we would expect, that those who received six months of therapy uh, um, did not complete the planned treatment as often as those who received just three months, principally because of the toxicity, and certainly more people had to have discontinuation of oxaliplatin or reduction in the dose if they received six months of therapy. So this trial did show that, as we would expect, three months was overall better tolerated with less side effects. However, unfortunately, the overall study did not reach its statistical endpoint. So we could not say in terms of the overall study that uh, three months was not inferior to six months. However, there were other analyses that are encouraging in terms of treating uh, individual patients. So first of all, the investigators looked at what we call high-risk people, that means people more likely to recur, and those with lower risk. So the lower risk individuals had uh, tumors that were less invasive and had fewer positive lymph nodes. And for the low risk people, it seemed that three months of adjuvant chemotherapy was actually okay. And so I think uh, this will become a standard of care. Overall, it seems that the KPOX was in fact non-inferior to the six months for low risk, although this was not proven uh, for full FOX. So currently, uh, I think uh, people with low risk tumors, you could consider either uh, KPOX or, or uh, full FOX in this situation. However, for people with higher risk, Full FOX given for three months actually seems to be inferior. So if a person was going to get full FOX for a high-risk tumor, then I think six months would remain the standard. In terms of KPOX, this is going to take individual discussion between the clinician and patient if they have a high-risk tumor uh, to determine if perhaps KPOX for three months would be preferable uh, for an individual uh, patient. So I, I think these were important results, and at least for the lower risk individual, I think we can be comfortable with three months of therapy. Higher risk is going to take much more personal discussion uh, between the uh, physician and the uh, patient. Now, uh, another important trial um, uh, involved a very large clinical trial that was undertaken by the NCI Cooperative Group, and this trial has had a number of different presentations, and the overall trial showed that for people who were receiving their first therapy for metastatic colorectal cancer uh, could receive... Um, either what we call full FOX uh, or uh, an alternative full theory 
with either the drugs bevacizumab uh, or uh, cetuximab. Uh, cetuximab reserved only for those patients whose tumors do not have what is called a RAS mutation. So this was encouraging that people have uh, multiple options uh, for treatment. However, uh, as is true with many large trials, we look for other aspects of the trial that may be important. And one observation from this trial and from others is that those patients with metastatic disease who have right-sided colon tumors appear to do less well than those with left-sided tumors. And what was also observed in this trial is that for people who had RAS wild-type tumors and right-sided tumor location, they did not appear to uh, benefit from cetuximab and, in fact, may have done less well if they received cetuximab. So it appears from this observation and others that if we're going to use cetuximab for chemotherapy, it's best used for those individuals with left-sided uh, colon tumors. So this will alter the discussion we have with patients and will certainly affect how we design clinical trials, continuing to look uh, for differences between left versus right tumors. Now, also important um, uh, observation, in 2015, looking at tumors which were uh, obtained from patients who participated in clinical trials, there was uh, an extensive biological analysis creating what's known as the colorectal molecular subtypes. And this is important because we now know there appear to be four important subtypes of individual patients that can affect prognosis as well as response to therapy. And one of the observations from this NCI trial that I just mentioned, those people who had colorectal molecular subtype 1, known as CMS1, were those uh, most likely to uh, receive benefit from bevacizumab uh, compared to uh, cetuximab. And so, again, with uh, the development of further biological understanding, we're going to need to start looking at these colorectal molecular subtypes when we design clinical trials, looking for any differences in terms of how people uh, respond to therapy. Now, related to tumor bi biology, uh, there has been another important observation. About 10% of people with colorectal cancer have what's called a BRAF mutation, which can be determined from their tumor specimen. And what we've learned is that people with BRAF mutation also appear to do less well. And so there is an urgency to develop new therapies for people with BRAF mutation. And through the NCI cooperative group system at ASCO, an important trial was presented 
that showed that perhaps we're making some headway. This trial was designed based on laboratory observations that if you give a drug, which is called the BRAF inhibitor, uh, known as vemurafenib, and the drug cetuximab, which I've already discussed and is known as an anti-EGFR agent and is an agent we can use for people who do not have RAS mutations, as well as the chemotherapy arena TCAN, that when we combine these drugs, it appeared to be beneficial. And so this clinical trial evaluated all three drugs for individuals with BRAF mutation. And what it showed compared to giving only cetuximab and arena-tecan, which is a standard regimen, the three drugs improved the response rate and progression-free survival. And th these are very encouraging data, and clearly we will build upon this information for other clinical trials, but this represents an option now for people who have the BRAF mutation. Dr. Chris talked about immunotherapy, and in colorectal cancer, immunotherapy is clearly a very important topic. Unfortunately, most people currently with colorectal cancer do not appear to respond to immunotherapy. However, there is a subgroup that, that appears to respond quite well to immunotherapy. There's another biological phenomenon uh, referred to as microsatellite instability, uh, also known as um, mismatch uh, repair. And uh, what we have uh, are microsatellites that are short repeating DNA sequences across the genome found in our cells. And these sequences are very prone to errors, and there are genes that can correct these, area, these uh, various errors. Uh, however, these mismatch repair genes that correct errors can be altered, and they can be altered through germline mutations, this is what we are born with, or uh, by uh, non-inherited loss of expression of a mismatch repair gene. About 15% of all patients with colorectal cancer uh, have evidence of uh, what's known as deficient mismatch repair or microsatellite instability. Uh, some of these are uh, inherited, but certainly not all. And because of the importance of understanding this for individual patients, we now recommend that all patients have their tumors tested by the pathologist for their MSI status. At ASCO this year, there was uh, an immunotherapy trial with the drug nivolumab. And in this trial, there were patients who had uh, progressed after previous therapy, and uh, uh, the trial was looking at the uh, impact of uh, nivolumab uh, for these patients who had MSI tumors. And what it showed 
is that there were significant uh, responses. And not only were there responses, but people appeared to have uh, much longer disease control than we typically see with chemotherapy drugs. And these data build upon other data that have been presented with yet another immunological drug known as pembrolizumab. So now, uh, with these data, if we have an individual with MSI-positive tumors, we certainly need to think about offering immunotherapy. And these data at ASCO uh, solidified these observations. And uh, I am now out of time, and I just wanted to give you a little capsule of some of the work that is uh, so promising as we learn more and more about the biology of colorectal cancer and how it can affect uh, how we can offer treatments uh, for our patients. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Benson. That was really excellent, outstanding, and really a lot of excellent information that people can use, and also um, this effort to kind of realize that what works in one, one area and thematically in terms of concept may be relevant to other cancers as well. Um, and so um, we're going to hear that thread throughout the entire presentation. Our next speaker um, is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is Associate Director, David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer, Attending Physician, Member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Waugh Cornell Medical College. And Dr. O'Reilly is going to be addressing updates from ASCO on pancreatic cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. O'Reilly. So thank you, and uh, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to be here to discuss what's been happening in pancreas cancer in 2017, and in particular to pick up on some of the highlights from the main ASCO meeting this year. And I'll cover this in several topics, uh, starting initially with sort of earlier stage disease and topics that are relevant uh, to a larger group of people with pancreas cancer, and then focus uh, for the latter part on developments in the treatment areas. So I think a hot area in pancreas cancer is around the topic of genetics and who should be tested for underlying gene mutations that might predispose to pancreas cancer, when should we consider testing, and what's the best test to use, and what are the implications of this for the person with pancreas cancer, and arguably, equally importantly, uh, for their family as well, because there can be implications beyond the individual itself. And several uh, papers on this topic have highlighted the fact that if we use guidelines that are published to indicate who should be tested, we'll find that we miss important findings in certain people, either because we've limited by age, we've limited by family background, or we've limited by heritage in terms of testing. And the importance of this is that going forward, it may be appropriate to think on a wider scale basis of whether we should be considering genetic testing for all people diagnosed with this disease. We're certainly not there yet, and the data wouldn't support that right now, but there are strong hints uh, that we should be thinking about this. And so just speaking for the individual, for example, if a person has a BRCA mutation, which we'll see 
sort of more likely to be present in people who have a personal or family history of breast or ovary or prostate cancer, uh, a little bit more highly represented in, in people with Ashkenazi uh, heritage. The implications there are that this person may benefit from certain drugs such as platinum drugs or experimentally uh, drugs called PARP inhibitors, which have a selective advantage in this particular uh, setting. So we look hard to identify these uh, mutations. And uh, the other uh, implication is for a healthy family member of uh, a person who's had pancreas cancer who carries one of these genes, we might selectively recommend screening for that individual. So. Lots of change happening here, uh, whether we should be using small panels or large panels of genes, uh, and when, when we should test, but the, the field is moving in the direction of sort of embracing this on a more widespread basis. And this also touches on another genetic topic, uh, the topic of should we be testing people's tumors, looking for uh, genetic changes for targeted treatments, so treatments that are more directly applied to a certain characteristic of that person's uh, tumor. And we're starting to see data emerge on this topic in pancreas cancer. And certainly, I think it's fair to say for small subsets of patients, we will find findings in the tumor that we can approach with a, a novel uh, treatment. Uh, but for most people, this is not a universal result as of yet. So a lot of work being done on this topic, and it, there is a sense that this will be more broadly applied and potentially applicable for refining treatment choices for clinical trials as well moving forward for individuals. So related to this whole topic of genetics, there's a, a spotlight on a recent uh, FDA approval, and this occurred beyond uh, people with pancreas cancer, but applies to a small subset of people with pancreas cancer. And this is the application of an immune therapy uh, drug, pembrolizumab, which is known for its value in non-small cell lung cancer and melanoma and many other diseases at this point. But uh, to date has been had relatively limited application in pancreas cancer, with the small exception that for people who have a change in their genes called mismatch repair deficiency, where they have a lot of uh, accumulation of genetic changes, they may be particularly uh, susceptible in terms of benefit to this approach using pembrolizumab uh, because there's a lot of targets for the immune system which traditionally are lacking for most people with pancreas cancer. So one of the genetic applications of examining the tumor and the blood is that we'll look very specifically uh, to see if these changes are present because this treatment is an important consideration for that couple of percent of people with pancreas cancer uh, who have this background. And often we'll see that in the context of other uh, genetic changes in, in, a, in a family. So I think that's exciting. These are important developments, a lot more to come as we begin to refine uh, how, who to test, when to test, and the, uh, the applications of those results. So moving to the topic of what's happening in uh, later stage uh, pancreas cancer where the disease has metastasized, and in particular kind of a focus on the active areas of research there. And I would say there are three uh, main areas. One is sort of capitalizing on the fact that uh, pancreas cancer cells 
have a physical barrier uh, that may mitigate against effective drug delivery to, to the tumor. That's called a stoma, or also referred to as the microenvironment uh, for pancreas cancer. And there are several drugs in, in the clinic that have shown uh, promise here. Uh, one in particular is an enzyme uh, called PEG-PH20 that's been combined with a standard treatment, gemcitabine and napactitexol, and has been shown to uh, have that ability to facilitate drug delivery and improve the control of the cancer. This has been demonstrated in a mid-phase study that was uh, presented and uh, highlighted at ASCO this year. And uh, this has now gone to the next step, to a phase three study, where it's the evaluation of the drug is being compared uh, to uh, the standard of care. So the trial is standard of care plus or minus uh, this enzyme, which is given as an intravenous injection. It's mostly reasonably well tolerated, does cause uh, some swelling, some cramps, and has been associated with blood clots. So people who are taking this uh, medication require to take a blood thinner concurrently to uh, remove that excess uh, clot risk. And the other, I think, exciting thing for the pancreas cancer world is it looks like there may be a marker for who may benefit from the use of this agent. So patients or individuals who have a high level of a substance called hyaluronin in their tumor uh, look to be the subgroup of people who, who will have most benefit. And the phase three trial that's underway is restricting enrollment uh, to that subgroup. So it's sort of enriching for uh, the potential for improved outcomes in this disease. So we look forward to seeing that study complete its recruitment. Hopefully that will happen in 2018 and results then to mature uh, thereafter. So that's exciting. Uh, more to, to, to follow on that topic. Two other areas to highlight are the application of uh, DNA uh, damaging agents. That's a class of drugs that have uh, improved uh, benefit in, in people who have certain gene mutations. Again, going back to the uh, BRCA story, we now know pretty convincingly uh, that platinum drugs uh, increase the chances of shrinking the cancer and controlling the disease for that subgroup, and studies are evaluating the addition of this class of drugs called PARP inhibitors uh, combined with these platinum agents or as a follow-on to platinum agents, uh, looking to see if they have the ability to increase the control of the cancer, uh, both in terms of the deepness of the response or how well the cancer responds and the duration of response. So again, important studies actively underway and, and will continue to mature uh, over the next uh, year or two. So moving back to the topic of immune therapy, but this time sort of focusing on uh, the wider group of people with pancreas cancer beyond this mismatch repair or MSI high group, uh, which is about 97, 98% of people with pancreas cancer. The field has been really working hard to understand why pancreas cancer has sort of been inherently more resistant uh, to immune therapies relative to other diseases. And some of the observations have been that there's a lack of the key immune cells in the environment of the pancreas cancer cells. So a lot of the current strategies are trying to reverse that phenomena, alter the environment, and get the key immune cells in. 
and there are hints now that that uh, may be promising in pancreas cancer, and there are lots of studies that are uh, evaluating this concept. And one of them was uh, reported at, at a recent meeting, which looks at a version of a drug called interleukin, uh, which is a modulator of the environment, causes the influx of immune favorable cells, and is being combined with chemotherapy uh, in a beyond initial treatment setting for pancreas cancer, so what we call the second-line setting. And that uh, these data look uh, very interesting. Drug causes, I would say, a fair bit of fatigue, but accepting that, it is now being evaluated uh, on this backbone of FOFOX, which is a standard approach that we would typically use in a in a second line setting and evaluating whether uh, the addition of this pegylated interleukin uh, adds to a standard of care. So it's I think very exciting to see drugs being developed not just in the initial treatment setting, but beyond that uh, in pancreas cancer. And these are the the key messages. So one FDA approval for a small subset of people with mismatch repair deficiency. Uh, several drugs in mid to late stage development where we'll have r results in the coming uh, year or two. Um, important focus on genetics in terms of the germline, meaning familial uh, genetics and heritage in the family and predisposition risk. And uh, secondly, uh, the application of that information uh, to treatments uh, for a given individual. And I would say these are all um, very topical areas, uh, and we look forward to hearing more uh, this year and beyond. So thank you. I'll, I'll pass it back to, uh, to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly. That was really excellent as well, and just very informative in terms of the uh, newest treatments for pancreatic cancer, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. John Leonard, and he'll be speaking about updates um, on lymphoma from ASCO. Um, Dr. Leonard is the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He is Associate Dean for Clinical Research while Cornell Medical College. He's also Vice Chairman for Clinical Research while Department of Medicine. And he's Associate Director of Clinical Trials, Sandra and Edward Mayer Cancer Center at Weill Cornell Medical. Cornell Medicine. He's attending physician, chief lymphoma service, New York Presbyterian, and he is director of the Joint Clinical Trials Office for Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian. As you can see, Dr. Uh, uh, Leonard wears many hats, and he is going to now present to you on updates from ASCO on uh, lymphoma. Uh, and my pleasure to present to you, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've had the chance to participate in several of these programs put on by Cancer Care, and I always find them to be uh, very informative and useful for uh, patients. So I'm glad that we have such a nice audience today. What I will do in the next few minutes is give you some updates in lymphoma or tumors of the lymph tissue, and I will talk a bit about uh, several uh, different areas or developments, some in the ASCO meeting, some that have uh, either come about or been announced uh, through other mechanisms um, or other meetings that have occurred over the past several months, but I think are important for patients and caregivers to know about. So lymphomas are tumors of the lymph tissue. There are over 100 different types of lymphoma, so it's very important for patients to know which type they're dealing with because a development in one type may or may not be applicable to patients that have a, a different type. 
about 10% of lymphomas are Hodgkin lymphomas, so I'll start there, also known as Hodgkin disease. And Hodgkin lymphomas typically are treated with chemotherapy. The most common initial chemotherapy regimen is something called ABVD, a combination of four chemotherapy drugs, adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastine, and decarbazine. And patients who relapse often go on to get different chemotherapy regimens. They, have, uh, they often get stem cell transplants, um, so they do require, if the disease comes back, a more aggressive treatment regimen. But the good news is that in many of those cases, though unfortunately not all, the disease can be cured with further therapy. So what's new in Hodgkin lymphoma? I would say that over the past uh, couple of years, we've had new drugs, a drug called Brentuximab bedotin. This is an antibody, an immune protein, against a molecule called CD30, which is on Hodgkin lymphoma cells. And this drug um, is uh, attached to a drug, a, a chemotherapy agent. So it's essentially a truck that is an immune protein that delivers this chemotherapy agent more specifically to the tumor cells. And the drug Brentuximab bedotin is uh, approved for patients with disease that's come back after initial therapy in, in certain situations. It's also approved in certain situations as a maintenance therapy in patients with relapse disease who've had stem cell transplant. So what's new there? Well, there is a uh, large uh, international randomized trial of over 1,000 patients uh, with newly diagnosed but advanced stage Hodgkin lymphoma that uh, showed that ABVD, the standard chemotherapy, um, was compared in this study to a substitution where the Brentuximab vedotin was swapped in for the chemotherapy drug bleomycin. And that study basically has only been announced, so the data are limited at this point, but has only been announced by a press release suggesting that there may be a potential benefit to the swapping in of this new drug, Brentuximab bedotin. This combination, however, does have some different uh, toxicity profiles, and so we're going to be needing to see the data which should be presented this year. So uh, later in this year, most likely at the American Society of Hematology meeting, I would assume, uh, where we'll see more data and information on this regard. So I think this is an important new news for patients dealing with Hodgkin lymphoma um, that we may potentially, over after many years, have a new uh, upfront treatment for these patients. And um, we also have a number of new drugs, what are called immune checkpoint inhibitors. You heard a little bit about them, a drug called pembrolizumab and a drug called nivolumab. These are approved for various solid tumors that other speakers have referenced. These are also approved for patients with recurrent Hodgkin lymphoma, and we're seeing a number of new studies with Hodgkin lymphoma looking at these agents in various combinations, particularly in the relapse setting. So the point being that there are lots of new drugs coming along with exciting activity, and we're still sorting out exactly where they fit in the course of treatment for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. Now I'm going to move to non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and most of these are called B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, and I just want to make a couple uh, of key points over the next few minutes. The most common of the indolent or low-grade or chronic lymphomas is called follicular lymphoma. 
follicular lymphoma is a lymphoma that is in some ways like a hitchhiker where it stays with the patient over many years. Many patients, most patients do not die from follicular lymphoma. They die with follicular lymphoma, although this is not universal. Most patients um, manage their follicular lymphoma over many, many years. And so having treatments that can work if the diseases come back is an important uh, important consideration for patients. And we have had over the last month a new drug uh, called Copenlisib, uh, recently approved for patients with relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma, meaning disease that's come back after prior therapies. And these data were presented at the ASCO meeting, and they've also been in the press because, again, this drug was recently approved. So PI3 kinase is a uh, is a uh, molecule in lymphoma cells. It's also present in many other tumor cells as well as normal tissues. There are several forms of PI3 kinase in human cells. PI3 kinase, I would say, is is can be thought of as kind of a switch inside the cells, so that the cells have machinery that that tell the cell to grow or tell the cell to die off. PI3 kinase is one of those switch that switches that keeps certain types of cells, including B cell lymphoma cells, alive. And so inhibiting PI3 kinase is something that would make sense potentially to make tumor cells die off. We have another PI3 kinase inhibitor, um, a drug called idelalisib that has been FDA approved for some time, for also for follicular lymphoma, as well as chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This is a drug that's approved, that's active and useful for some patients in follicular lymphoma but do, uh, and other lymphomas. It does have some side effects with regard to liver issues in some patients as well as gastrointestinal issues and diarrhea or colitis, inflammation of the colon. And so we now have a second approved drug, copenlisib. This is a different form of a PI3 kinase inhibitor. It kind of hits different uh, PI3 kinase molecules in cells. And this drug was FDA approved because in patients with disease that had come back after multiple prior therapies, the response rate, meaning the percentage of patients that had significant tumor shrinkage, was in the range of about 60%. And the duration of this response could be, in some patients, quite substantial, uh, generally a, a year or, in some cases, longer than that. And so this proved to be useful for some patients with recurrent follicular lymphoma. This is a drug that's given intravenously. Its main side effects include uh, side effects around blood sugar elevations, high blood pressure, uh, some gastrointestinal side effects. So it is something that does have some side effects, but for some patients, this is an interesting and potentially important drug that may be useful in some cases. So we're always happy when we have new drugs available that work in different ways and that can potentially be valuable to patients out there that need them. There are another, a number of other drugs with data presented in lymphoid malignancies, lymphoid tumors, and this is an evolving and moving target. One is a drug called lenalidomide. Uh, lenalidomide, also called Revlimid, is a pill that is an immune modulatory drug. 
This is a drug that's been around for multiple myeloma for many years. It's active in certain types of lymphoma. It's approved for mantle cell lymphoma. And this is a drug that is being used in combinations with rituximab, an anti-CD20 antibody commonly uh, used for B-cell lymphomas. And we had some recent data uh, presented at the ASCO meeting and elsewhere suggesting that this could be useful. And a number of other studies are ongoing looking at lenalidomide in lymphoma patients. <clears throat> Another new drug is a drug called venetoclax. Venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor. BCL2 is a protein in tumor cells, including B-cell lymphomas and chronic lymphocytic leukemia cells, as well as many other tumor cells. BCL2 helps to keep the cells alive and helps make them resistant to treatment in some cases, and so an inhibitor of BCL2 may make the tumor cells more prone to die off and may make other treatments more effective. And so we had an update of venetoclax, this BCL2 inhibitor, um, presented at the ASCO meeting, suggested that in certain types of lymphoma, this could be useful, including mantle cell lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, marginal zone lymphoma, and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. All of these are types of B-cell lymphomas. And so while uh, venetoclax is approved for certain types of B-cell lymphomas, it's being, uh, it's being studied in a much more broad sense, both alone and in combination. And so we will see more data with this agent coming along. And then in the last uh, two minutes or so, I want to just give you an update on a very exciting area that you may have heard a lot about. This is a type of therapy called CAR T-cell um, treatment or uh, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. So this is a type of therapy that was recently approved by one company uh, in one form for adult lymphocytic leukemia but this is also being understudied by a number of different companies and investigators in various other types of B-cell lymphoma, and there are new versions of CAR T-cells being studied in lots and lots of different types of leukemia, lymphoma, and other solid tumors across the country and across the world. So what is a CAR T-cell? CAR T-cells are T-cells, immune cells, that are removed from the patient, kind of like a fancy blood donation. In the laboratory, these cells are then manipulated or treated in a, in a laboratory to make them more uh, immune active, to essentially teach them or train them to fight tumor cells in certain cases. They are then reinfused into the patient like a fancy blood transfusion where they circulate around the body, bind to tumor cells, and can have a, in some cases, dramatic tumor response. So CAR T-cells are very exciting. These are new treatments that, again, are approved in certain subsets, particularly young patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia. But they're being studied in B-cell lymphomas. The main side effects of CAR T-cells is that there can be a very strong immune response and so part of that immune response can affect the patient quite severely where these immune chemicals or cytokines are released, and that can sometimes cause um, a severe neurologic uh, process almost uh, uh, where the patient may temporarily have fevers and an immune reaction and in some cases have confusion and other neurologic side effects. But that being, the, that, that being said, 
a, a benefit of this is that some patients with disease that's been quite refractory to other treatments can be quite uh, effectively treated in some cases. So CAR T cells are very excited. If you look at the press and you, you look in the newspaper, on TV, you sometimes see these very inspiring stories. I think what I would say right now is that this is a very exciting treatment approach for some patients, but it is not for everyone. And the trade-offs of doing a CAR T-cell uh, treatment at this point in time are under active study. There's a lot of work going on to try to make this more effective and less toxic so that more patients can potentially benefit and potentially that the treatment may work even better. But that being said, for certain particularly B-cell leukemias and lymphomas, this is something that may be available for some patients and might be an appropriate treatment for some patients, though certainly not all patients in the near future. So with that, I will uh, uh, stop and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Leonard. That was really outstanding and, and, and incredibly lots of information packed into a, a, a small amount of time and I think a lot for everyone to take away. So thank you so much uh, for your presentation. Next, I'm going to speak on updates from ASCO on leukemia. I'm Dr. Michael Morrow, Leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, Clinical Director, Leukemia Service, Member, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And it's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Morrow, who's going to address updates from ASCO on leukemia. Well, thank, for the, thank you for that introduction, Carolyn. And again, my name is Michael Morrow, and I'm, I'm glad to join you today. Um, my topic was to review the updates from the ASCO 2017 meeting with regards to leukemia. And in the next 10 or 12 minutes or so, I'd like to cover just a few topics, but I think some really important ones. The first is a therapy option, which I think is definitely um, in the news and up for discussion, and that's CART T-cell therapy, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. I know this may come up in, in some of the other areas we covered today, but this is an exciting development, particularly in the area of leukemia. Um, and as many of you may know or have heard, this type of therapy in the end of August was FDA-approved, the first agent, which is hard to pronounce, a drug called Tisagenlucel, or Chimera. So what is CAR T-cell therapy? CAR T stands for chimeric antigen receptor, um, and what we're talking about is a living drug, a, an engineered product where a patient's T cells are removed. They are then modified in a way where they now are carry a receptor which um, causes T cells, which are natural cancer-finding cells to a degree, but allows them to engage quite readily with B cells, which are part of certain cancers. And in particular, this drug has now been approved for B cell ALL, particularly in, at, at first in younger people under 25, where their leukemia has been refractory to treatment, meaning it hasn't responded, or they've had a second or later return or relapse of their disease. And what we saw at ASCO 2017 was a few nuances of this topic. First, we saw information about from a larger group of patients that were studied in Philadelphia, um, those that had relapsed of their leukemia outside the typical areas we see it, something called extramedullary relapse. And just to to summarize this topic, what, what we found, or what was found and what was spoken about was that this therapy, the CAR T-cell therapy, which really is an immune-based therapy, was able to treat leukemia not just when it returns or persists in the typical areas, but also when it returns outside of the blood and bone marrow in the typical places that it can be found. 
I think this is very encouraging because this is a sort of a, ch a challenge in leukemia when it um, persists or returns outside of the usual places we expect to see it. Another study at, at ASCO 2017 um, was related to using a second immune therapy, something also exciting called um, interference or blockade with PDL1. Um, so this a, has been termed checkpoint, a checkpoint or a, a block that our immune system normally puts in place or has in order to control immune regulation and immune response. And by sort of unleashing this um, receptor, this pathway through an antibody that blocks the receptor or the actual um, ligand, the thing that binds the receptor, you can activate the immune system. Um, and our, as we know, the immune system is one of our best weapons against cancer. So related to the T-cell story, they actually used two immune therapies, the CAR T-cell therapy and this PD-L1 for patients who had received CAR T-cell therapy, but the, the cells that have been engineered to fight cancer and, and have generally worked very well didn't persist or the disease, um, they didn't persist and the disease returned. And in a small number of patients who got a combination of CAR T-cell therapy and an antibody called Prembolizumab, uh, which is an approved drug for different cancers um, in which the PD pathway or the program death ligand um, is, um, is uh, part of the cancer and is useful to block, um, the, this combination of CAR T-cell therapy and Prembolizumab was able to essentially restore the uh, persistence of the T cells as measured by killing off the cancerous B cells and was able to help even a patient gain remission who had full relapse of their leukemia. So we're seeing really an explosion of, of immune therapy. We have now approval. This was a big story in the news. And now we have some, some um, reports from ASCO showing us some of the more details. One additional big report was the use of this CAR T cell therapy in multiple myeloma, different blood cancer, where um, we know there are very good treatment approaches, different chemotherapy approaches. Um, uh, bone marrow transplant is an option, but it's, it's clear that some patients have multiple lines of therapy and have persistence of their myeloma. And um, a group from China um, presented data on using a, a, a now an engineered T cell against a specific antigen or protein, a B cell maturation antigen, was called on myeloma cells. And in a in a modest 35 number, you know, 35 um, large patient study, they had a 100% response rate. Some patients responded as as quickly as 10 days, and within a few months' time, the overwhelming majority of patients had response. And for patients who had a complete response, none of them had um, had um, relapsed. And and some patients were free of their myeloma, having had multiple lines of treatment. And, un and had been unable to gain a deep remission with all the other standard therapies. So we're seeing now the CAR T-cell therapy is probably useful in m many different cancers, and as you probably have heard or may know, this type of approach is being studied in many different cancers. But our first looks at these B-cell tumors, ALL, multiple myeloma, um, and in combination with immune therapies that this um, um, is really uh, proof principle that this is a fantastic approach and a huge advance. So look for more information about that therapy. The second thing I'd like to talk to you about is an advance in CML, chronic myeloid leukemia. And at ASCO 2017, there was a report of a trial comparing one of the standard drugs that's used for patients with CML, which nowadays is a highly treatable and almost uh, we view it as a potentially functionally curable type of leukemia. And we're still looking to see what is our best first treatment. And there are three medications currently available, which is fantastic news. And we're now even seeing if there's room for a fourth. 
to be added into the mix as an option. And basutinib, which is a drug which has been studied and has already been approved for people who had taken imantinib or Gleevec or other medications and needed a second or third or even fourth option, how, do, how would basutinib compare to Gleevec if people took it right at diagnosis? It was a fairly large study run around the world with um, people getting, ironically, the same dose of each medication, um, but it was over 500 patients, and um, they had early chronic phase CML, so they had just been diagnosed. And one of the main things looked at is how quickly they would go into a, not just a blood or bone marrow, but a molecular remission. And after 12 months, there was a significant advantage for basutinib. And this was similar to what had been seen for medications called nolantinib or gisantinib, the other two medications also available for patients with CML. As patients were followed longer, they had also deeper molecular emissions at a faster pace, meaning more patients. And they hit early milestones um, at more likely um, than they would have if they weren't Gleevec. Now, Gleevec still performed very well, but there was a margin of benefit for basutinib over um, imantinib or Gleevec. At this point, it's too early to say whether patients overall are doing differently on the two groups of study because the, almost 100% of both groups um, are expected to do well um, to be um, free of events, free, free of, of any kind of threat um, from their CML. And um, there were small differences in the rates of patients who, who progressed to a more advanced form of CML, but I think the data is too early to say. So what we've learned here is that we probably have now a potential fourth option which you know, I think the FDA will need to look at. But um, the story for chronic myeloid leukemia or CML continues to look extremely promising. And um, we now have even bigger spoiler riches, as we call it, and maybe, maybe not three, but maybe even four medications we can think about at diagnosis. If you step back and look at some of the, you know, the complexities of some of these research questions, I think it really raises the point of what um, patients and, and doctors need to do together to kind of navigate and raising the, the importance of doctor-patient communications. For example, I take, take care of a lot of patients with CML. It's so important to talk about all these options and to ask which one's best for me. What, is the, what are all these research studies showing? Um, what, what options do I have now? What could have, options could I have later? Side effects, risks, benefits. What's right for you? And, and also that in conjunction with what your doctor feels like may be the right choice for you. Navigating the complexities of research with therapies like immune therapies I talked about is even more brought with complications. I didn't bring out the point that CAR T-cell therapy is a serious undertaking. I, I put it in the same category as bone marrow transplant um, in that it is a lengthy therapy with a, a, um, a period of recovery needed. There, is, there are risks, particularly of a very severe inflammation syndrome called cytokine release, where people need to be in the hospital and may need to be monitored even in, in a critical care setting to make sure that, that their immune system doesn't overshoot too great and the therapy doesn't cause serious complications. So asking questions, and I get a lot of them about, you know, what about CAR T-cell therapy? Is that something that we can use to treat my disease? Of course, it's being worked on, but it needs more development, and we have our first approval and our first exciting data, more exciting data to come. But the outlook is bright for leukemia. It wasn't um, – I didn't cover a lot of topics, but I hopefully have, have um, educated you a bit on a few of the highlights we saw at ASCO 2017, and I thank you for your attention. Tomorrow, that was excellent. Um, lots of good information for everybody, and I appreciate your presentation. And our next presenter is Dr. Ruben Messa, and Dr. Messa will be presenting on myeloproliferative neoplasms. Dr. Messa is director, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center, Mays Family Foundation, Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine with tenure. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Messa, who will be addressing. Uh, 
mild plicitive neoplasms. Hello, it's really a great pleasure to be here today and participating in the first uh, of these uh, teleconferences from my new home in San Antonio as director of the UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center. Now, it's my pleasure here to be able to uh, give you an update regarding the discussions at the American Society of Clinical Oncology regarding myeloproliferative neoplasms, uh, as well as frame that a bit regarding our ongoing understanding of these groups of chronic blood diseases. Certainly we continue to advance in really thinking of how we can best individualize our care for patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms. Individualized in terms of understanding where an individual stands with their disease in terms of risk, risk of vascular events, risk of their disease progressing, the burden they have with the disease, whether that's related to symptoms such as itching or fatigue, whether that's related with difficulties such as enlargement of the spleen. Also in terms of the impact of the disease on the blood count. So patients with MPNs can be quite varied in terms of how the disease affects them, and clearly our goals of treatment are accordingly. This summer, I would say that there are several gaps in our understanding of these diseases that were discussed at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. First, in the setting of a central thrombocytemia, I'd say that there's three gaps. What's our best frontline treatment? How do we best prevent disease progression? And what's the role of JAK inhibition? First, what is our best initial treatment? There were trials presented regarding the use of anagrelide uh, in individuals with ET who otherwise would not have normally treated with uh, medicines to control their count. Normally, patients with intermediate or low-risk ET would receive aspirin uh, and be observed. There was a study that compared using anagrelide versus just continuing patients on placebo in patients who had intermediate risk ET. A plate account of less than 100,000, but were aged 40 to 60 or had had their disease for a longer period of time. What was found is that anagrelide was beneficial in this group, and it raises the question whether we should be considering medicines to control the platelet counts, perhaps in a broader group of patients with ET. The second question regarding the best upfront treatment is whether or not those that require medicines to control their counts should be on the medicine hydroxyurea or pegylated interferon. There was a trial that I participated with my colleagues from the MPD Research Consortium that had patients with high-risk ET randomized to either hydroxyurea or pegylated interferon. What that demonstrated is that both drugs were very active. They can control the platelet count. They help to decrease the risk of blood clots and bleeding. It's not clear that one drug was better than another, however. So that's, on the one hand, uh, good information in that interferon is just as beneficial as hydroxyurea but it does not show that one is better. Uh, these studies are being tracked over time to see does pegylated interferon have a better control long-term in terms of delaying disease progression, better molecular control of the disease, or other benefits. Now, for polycythemia vera, the discussions are similar but slightly different. There's still the question, what's that best upfront optimal treatment? How do we prevent disease progression? And 
how early should we consider JAK inhibition? Those same studies that looked at interferon versus hydroxyurea for newly diagnosed patients with ET were also conducted in those with polycythemia vera. One in the U.S. through the MPD Research Consortium with pegylated interferon alpha-2A, or what is called Pegasus. The second uh, drug tried in Europe with a, from a company called AOP, a Austrian formulation of interferon. Both of these studies had very similar results. Like the uh, results from ET, it was found that uh, pegylated interferon and hydroxyurea were equivalent, both beneficial, both decreasing the increase in count, both decreasing risk of blood clots or bleeding. Uh, neither was better than the other, uh, again, being followed for the long term to see whether or not there will be uh, any long-term benefit of one over the other in terms of control of the molecular features of the disease. In PV, it's clearly been demonstrated that ruxolitinib is very beneficial as second-line therapy in patients that had failed hydroxyurea, better for controlling the disease in terms of controlling hematocrit, spleen size, symptoms, and less blood clotting events. This has been shown in patients both that had an enlarged spleen and now in new studies in patients who did not have an enlarged spleen, the response to study. New studies will be started in patients with earlier polycythemia vera to see whether or not it would be beneficial to use this even earlier in the setting of the disease. Finally, let's switch our attention to myelofibrosis. The most difficult of the MPNs to treat in myelofibrosis, ruxolitinib has clearly become our standard of care and has been the only FDA-approved agent for uh, polycythemia vera now for over five years. It's been very beneficial in terms of having a favorable impact on how long patients live, improving symptoms, improving spleen size. Yet there are still our opportunities. Those opportunities are regarding the uh, potential impact that ruxolitinib has on the red blood cell count and that patients can develop anemia, uh, impact on the platelets, and sometimes that we are unable to use that medicine in patients with very low platelet count. In that setting, there are two studies I would highlight that were brought up at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. The first is procritinib. Uh, this is an agent, a JAK2 and FLIP3 inhibitor, uh, where we saw the results of the PERSIST-2 study. So patients with a plate account of less than 100,000, and it was shown that procritinib given at 200 milligrams twice a day was probably better than procritinib 400 milligrams once a day or best alternative therapy for patients with a very low platelet count. Uh, and it was found to be better specifically in the way that it helped to control the spleen size and symptoms and safety. That agent is currently having some final trials and may well be available to treat patients with myelofibrosis who have a low plate account in the near future. The second study was one that I presented at ASCO regarding the Simplify-1 study. Simplify-1 is uh, mamalidinib versus ruxolidinib 
uh, for patients newly diagnosed or at least had not had a JAK inhibitor uh, for uh, those with myelofibrosis. And it demonstrated that both agents were active uh, and neither inferior in terms of reducing the size of the spleen. Uh, next, studied the difference between their control of symptoms, where ruxolitinib was slightly better than momelitinib for that uh, group of difficulties. And third, regarding changes in the blood counts, where momelitinib was better at uh, avoiding the development of anemia for patients who went on rux, as well as helping baseline anemia. This trial uh, had mixed results technically in that it had been planned for it to be non-inferior for spleen and symptoms and then better for anemia and platelet count. The, the next steps for momelitinib are being discussed between the manufacturers and uh, the regulatory agencies. So as you can see, there is much to be uh, hopeful regarding better understanding of treatments and when to use them in earlier disease such as ET and polycythemia vera. There's important new trials that will be up and coming, such as a trial for patients with more problematic ET to receive ruxolitinib as a way to try to help them. There's additionally new trials that will be opening up with uh, agents for patients with more problematic disease, whether they have ET or polycythemia vera. In myelofibrosis, new trials are opening up for individuals that have difficulties with anemia and their disease. I'm involved in leading a study with Lespatercept, uh, an agent who has a cousin medicine, Soterocept, which was presented and showed ability to help improve anemia in patients with myelofibrosis. So I'd say there's a tremendous amount to be hopeful for. There continues to be a lot of important uh, scientific work done for patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms, trying to understand why do patients develop the disease to begin with. The new molecular markers, what do they mean? How do they help predict how the disease might behave? What are the implications in terms of new treatments uh, that can be developed? And the final part, which is key, is how can we better help to avoid progression in the for these individuals that face these difficult diseases? Uh, and are there ways we can decide design new medicines to really try to avoid that progression? Finally, I would say that our group uh, has been very active, and our group includes investigators now from UT Health San Antonio, from the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, from Oregon Health Sciences, from UC Irvine, who are looking at uh, a range of non-pharmacologic ways to try to help alleviate residual difficulties and symptoms in MPN patients, ranging from meditation interventions, uh, yoga, uh, nutrition interventions, and others to help empower you as MPN patients uh, as you battle the difficulties with the disease. So I hope this has been a helpful conversation, and we'll hand the conference back over to Dr. Messer. Thank you very much, Dr. Messer. That was most informative. Thank you and excellent. And our next speaker, um, our final speaker, is actually uh, Dr. Gregory Daniels, and Dr. Daniels is going to be addressing melanoma, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, and he's also going to wrap up part one of this program. And to tell you a bit about Dr. Daniels, Dr. Daniels is a clinical professor of medicine, Morris UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. It's 
my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, everybody, for being on the call. And, of course, Cancer Care for organizing this um, marathon summary of ASCO and some of the really exciting stuff happening in cancer care, and I'll, I'll try to summarize a little bit at the end. But I'm going to focus down in the few remaining minutes on melanoma and then touch, as uh, Carolyn mentioned, on cutaneous squamous cell uh, cancer of the skin. So melanoma occurs on the skin, um, but it also occurs in the eye on mucosal linings as well. Um, but I'm going to focus just on uh, cutaneous or skin melanoma, where the incidence continues to increase. Uh, but fortunately, our understanding of the disease is, is uh, catching up to what's going on, and our care options have also increased. It's still one of our frontline um, methods of combating this disease is awareness and early detection. So those of you that are remaining on the on the call, thank you very much uh, because our skin is right in front of us and your loved one's skins are right in front of you too, I hope. So just watching skin, early detection for any signs of change or concern to talk to a healthcare provider and uh, get a, an evaluation and if necessary, a biopsy. So with that said, um, since ASCO, there have been several uh, updates that have happened for melanoma patients that are worth mentioning, so it will be ASCO+. Plus. Um, and I'll start with uh, what one considers high-risk melanoma. High-risk melanomas are really any melanoma has a risk for spread, but based on the depth or other pathologic characteristics of the lesion, um, there's a um, a demonstrated risk of spread to lymph nodes or through the bloodstream as metastatic disease. And it's not uncommon that we're faced with the decision of doing not just an excision of the melanoma, but how wide an excision and if we should assess for lymph node involvement. The current standard is um, if you meet a criteria to do a what's called sentinel lymph node. This is a procedure where the surgeon injects in around the side of the melanoma a substance, usually a dye, some radiation. And what we can do is isolate out the lymph node that um, monitors that site for melanoma. If the lymph node is positive, our current guidelines have suggested that we discuss and to recommend what's called a completion lymph node dissection. For many years, uh, we've been trying to address the value of a completion lymph node dissection. And uh, recently, Dr. Ferries uh, published the work of the MSLT2, which was a large US-based study. There have been other studies trying to address this too. But the fundamental question, does further surgery help patients? And help um, is defined as decreasing local recurrence of the cancer, as well as improving overall survival for patients. Because patients with a sentinel lymph node have a risk of more lymph nodes being positive where that other sentinel was. So does it make sense to go early with a preemptive surgery or observe patients? And this study, again published in the New England Journal, just coincident with ASCO, um, shed more light that for the time studied, which was about three years of follow-up for patients in the large group of patients evaluated, that early surgery did not afford any survival benefit to close observation of patients with sentinel lymph nodes positive. 
So what this means is it's another bit of information. If you have a microscopic spread of melanoma, it may not be the, the next best thing to do more surgery at that point, and that close observation and consideration for adjuvant treatments may give a better outcome. So still more to come, more to digest on this data, um, but this is this is potentially a big changer for how uh, melanoma surgeries are performed in this country as far as node-positive patients. The next thing I'll jump to is adjuvant treatment. So after surgery, if there's um, a discussion with your oncologist or other provider that um, there's adjuvant treatments, and these are treatments designed to decrease the, the risk of, of recurrence as well as improve overall survival, um, he or she will talk about interferon or ipilimumab as systemic treatments that can be used. Um, in the last several months, um, there's been a, um, the start of a, another huge change in this area, and that was with uh, data at ASCO from the ECOG 1609 study, which was comparing the standard dose of ipilimumab at 10 mg per kg compared to a lower dose, which is what we use in metastatic disease, at 3 mg per kg. And the the impetus for this was to decrease side effects for patients. And what was presented at ASCO was true. It decreases side effects from patients and appeared to have the same relapse-free survival endpoint. However, cautions warranted, as this was not a planned endpoint for the study, and relapse-free survival is not the gold standard for assessing uh, the benefit of an adjuvant treatment, that is, overall survival. Fast forward now, um, really since ASCO, there have been two um, papers presented, both at uh, a European meeting, European Society of Medical Oncology, and that was the Checkmate 238 study and the COMBI-AD study. The Checkmate uh, evaluated nivolumab, the PD-1 inhibitor you've heard so much about so far in these discussions, for stage 3 melanoma patients uh, compared to ipilimumab, and the COMBI-AD looked at targeted therapies for those patients with a BRAF mutation uh, were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to a placebo or to brafinib and trametinib. And both studies were positive for their endpoints, meaning both studies showed a benefit in patients with adjuvant treatment. And it's going to be very interesting to see how these are incorporated into the current uh, treatment options for patients at high risk for melanoma coming back. And so we just are getting a flood of of new information and new options uh, for patients in the adjuvant setting. I'll go to advanced disease. This is where disease cannot be uh, reasonably cut out, and we're giving systemic treatments to control and, in some cases, cure melanoma that is spread uh, all over the body. And in the past, this has been done with these checkpoints and cytokine therapies as well as targeted agents. And we got a lot of information on why, in a subset of patients, these therapies are not working as we would have hoped, or that patients are becoming resistant. So I think it's an area that um, next year is going to bring a lot of new medications uh, to the forefront as, as we understand better these resistant pathways. So I'll just say stay tuned for that. Um, but call out at least one highlight from ASCO, which was in the management of patients with brain metastases. This has been a um, very difficult, very challenging problem in melanoma because melanoma can spread to the brain so often. And historically, surgery and radiation were really our only options uh, for patients where systemic agents had not uh, 
had much of a role. That changed uh, with a study with ipilimumab a few years back, which showed that for patients who had a small number of lesions, that ipilimumab had measurable and significant um, activity in patients with brain metastasis. This year saw three studies, uh, not just one, but three studies looking at the combination of therapies, ipilimumab and nivolumab, or nivolumab by itself, or the targeted therapies, dibrafenib and trametinib in patients with brain metastases. And all three studies showed a benefit uh, for patients with brain metastases, some that were very substantial. What this brings is another um, topic of discussion where typically we focus very quickly on taking care of a brain metastasis with surgery or radiation. And now we can bring in the bigger picture discussion of does it make sense instead to work in these newer agents into the management and potentially delay or even avoid radiation uh, or surgery in the management of of patients with brain metastases. So again, another one of these stay tuned, lots happening in this area. And so um, I will pause on melanoma. Uh, there was a ton more at ASCO, uh, but switch gears briefly to cutaneous squamous cell. Um, cutaneous squamous cell is the second most common cancer um, in the world and certainly in the United States, um, just behind basal cell uh, cancers. So it's a common cancer of the skin. Um, it's caused by chronic sun damage. And additional risk factors could include smoking or immune suppression or other, other diseases. So the vast majority of these cancers are taken care of by surgery. And in those cases where surgery is not appropriate or cannot um, manage a lesion appropriately, then radiation can be used as well. However, there is a small set of this common cancer group that cannot be uh, cured by those approaches. And this is what we call um, locally advanced unresectable or even metastatic cutaneous squamous cell. In the past, we've used what's called cytotoxic chemotherapies. Um, these are still used in many, many cancers and have a role. Uh, however, um, they have modest benefits in this, in this uh, disease. We've also used targeted therapies, um, oral agents that target EGFR, uh, but again, modest activity. And so we were really in need of a breakthrough here. And that came at ASCO uh, 2017. While case reports had been uh, outlining that PD-1 blockade can help patients with advanced cutaneous squamous cell, um, a ongoing phase one study or data from a phase one study were presented on a PD-1 blocker from a company called Regeneron. Uh, they presented data for both unresectable patients as well as metastatic patients and showed uh, pretty impressive response rates with more than half the patients or approximately half the patients getting um, significant shrinkage of tumors and more than half the patients really getting what appeared to be a benefit from, from these treatments or this PD-1 therapy. Um, with stable disease. And we were seeing patients, uh, it was a short, short follow-up study, but more than six months out who were still having control of the disease. And this has been unheard of in this, in this disease state before. So I hope you can say, wow, um, listening to all these discussions, ASCO was a flood of information. 
and it's been a convergence of these novel treatments with a really a better scientific understanding of each of these cancer processes and gets back to why we're having these kind of programs. Uh, cancer care is becoming more and more complex, and as uh, Dr. Chris even mentioned in the beginning, it's a multidisciplinary team uh, that you have to assemble and keep track of management of information with you, also your care team of family and friends and support. So I'll turn it back to Carolyn um, because that's what their organization is, is focused on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really outstanding and really remarkable. Um, and thank you also for the wrap-up and for just really bringing in so much to this program. And I just want to conclude the program by saying, yes, there are many the multi-display piece is so important. And I do want to say a word about cancer care services. I also particularly want to highlight many of you across the country um, have been affected by the recent hurricanes and storms. And cancer care has a special fund that has been set up to help people with financial assistance for people who have been affected by these hurricanes. And you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. So that's important for all of you to know, to share with others, and to be aware of. Cancer Care also provides a host of other services. Um, this particular type of workshop program, we also have oncology social workers who provide counseling services, so someone to talk with um, over the telephone or online. We also have support groups on the telephone online as well. And we have um, publications, many publications that we offer, fact sheets that can really help you, um, and they're both in English and Spanish. So that there's a host of services that you can access from Cancer Care. Most importantly, as we conclude today's program, I know that some of you may have questions, questions that you really would like to have answers to about your specific situation. So I always, of course, rec recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team. They're the best. They know you best. They have all your records. But many of you like to get a credible source to get information, medical information. And for that, I always recommend the National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237. And for those who prefer to visit their website and talk in a live chat, that would be available to anyone both in the U.S. or globally. That number is, uh, that, that, uh, that website is www.cancer.gov. And there, you, there's a live chat feature, and you can actually have a live conversation with um, an expert um, information specialist at the National Cancer Institute and get your questions addressed and answered so that you feel better informed and you can ask perhaps your healthcare team more informed questions. We also have, this is part one, so there is a part two covering many other solid tumors. So you, many of you may have signed up for that already, um, so please do. It's actually on Thursday on September 28th. And I want to thank you all for your participation today um, and uh, for staying the course with this uh, really uh, marathon program. And uh, thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.